Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of RealCom Live. Uh, so good to be here. Uh, another exciting episode. Um, the topic today, uh, the state of the prop tech investment landscape. Um, if you think about, you know, the big fundamental buckets uh, of the of the prop tech industry, you've got those those industry giant companies who've been around for a long time. You've got those uh, intermediary companies who've been around for 10, 15 years, came out of the dot-com era. And then you've got just this multitude of startups that, that literally are popping up all over the globe and really have, have dominated a lot of the conversation over the last 5, 10, even 15 years. And uh, recently, with uh, all the news we're seeing about uh, SVB and, and other banking issues and in the prop tech market in general, uh, some of the early companies getting hit a little bit here in the last year or so, um, there's a lot of questions as to where does that segment of the industry, the prop tech investment, the startup uh, investment landscape uh, or category, where are they? So we're calling on two industry veterans, uh, two guys who've been at it for a long time, got great reputations, are down there on the on the battleground, uh, battle lines fighting this thing out um, and really leading the way in a lot of respects. So we've got Travis Connors, the co-founder and general partner of Building Ventures, and Zach Aaron's co-founder and general partner of Metaprop. NYC. So why don't we bring these guys on and let's get right to this conversation, which uh, I know everybody's going to find fascinating. Guys, how are you? Super. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having us. I know you're younger and and you know you're 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 the new generation, but I, I still consider you veterans because you've been at this for a while, and uh, and have really been out there for a long time trying to get this venture capital ecosystem integrated into the prop tech world and and really have done a good job with it. So um, I gave you a brief intro. Zach, why don't we start with you and just give the audience a little bit of your background, how you got to PropTech and, and a little bit about Metaprop. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm not as young as I may look, Jim. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I started uh, straddling the venture capital startup ecosystem here in New York City along with the commercial real estate uh, world. I worked as a uh, landlord, property manager and developer for a firm called Millennium Partners, which did large-scale mixed-use development uh, in key uh, gateway cities in the U.S. Um, while I was there, I was a customer of many uh, prop tech uh, solutions, many of the solutions that, uh, that we see uh, every year at the Realcom conference, as well as some of the newer innovations coming online, also started to make investments into some of those companies. Uh, and then parlayed that to start Metaprop in 2015. Uh, Metaprop is a prop tech-focused uh, venture capital firm. Uh, we're based out of New York, but we uh, invest uh, globally uh, in solutions across the real estate value chain uh, for all different real estate asset types. We're now investing out of our fourth early stage fund and our first uh, growth and opportunity fund. So seeing uh, all types of uh, interesting uh, opportunities, which we'll get to uh, a little bit later. Um, but uh, I, so I've effectively, as a customer, uh, user, uh, angel investor in PropTech, uh, been in this space for almost 15 years uh, now. So really seen uh, quite a bit of growth uh, and, and recently some contraction as well. So uh, mm -hmm. thrilled to be here. Well, and and the good news about your story is that you owned, operated, and managed buildings. Roll up the sleeves, you know, understanding the problems literally from the ground up. Uh, therefore, understanding the prop tech need uh, at, a, at a much different level than somebody who didn't come from the industry. So that's great. 
Yeah, I think one of the benefits to working at my old job, we had a, um, a pretty uh, horizontal organization. We didn't have specified leasing, development division, acquisitions department. We just weren't big enough. So while you shouldn't trust me to do any real estate task, because I've probably only done it once or twice, I have <laughs> done every real estate task at least once. And so I saw firsthand the pain that the surveyor goes through, the appraiser, the title agent, all the constituents involved in many different types of real estate transactions over the years. So uh, I, I really enjoy what I do. Yeah. Complicated puzzle, no doubt. Um, Travis, how about your background? How did you get here? Sure. So I've been an early stage uh, generalist venture capitalist for the past 23 years now. Um, but during that time, made a few investments that crossed over into what we now think of as the prop tech world. I made my first uh, integrated workplace management solutions software investment in 2001. Um, <laughs> at the time, we thought that would be a mark of inevitability. We're still waiting. Um, <laughs> and and then in 2006, did my first smart cities investment with my now co-founder of Building Ventures. Uh, again, early, which- That was 2001? 2006 was my 2006, first- That's still early. Investment. That was still early. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and you know, early translates to uh, wrong in our business, but um, it did bring Jesse and I together and we spent 10 years thinking about when technology would finally begin to uh, affect real change in the built environment. And that led us to create building ventures together in 2017. Okay, A number of important trends, including the, the, the birth of Metarop in recognizing that if we could bring together a community of investors for ourselves who were the prime movers in the space from architects and engineering firms to construction firms and real estate firms to support a fund who would then uh, help build these startups and so we did that we invest across the life cycle of the built environment we're really interested in companies that can fundamentally change the way we design build operate and experience space Right. So it's about, it's about seven, eight years, seems that both of you have been at this. So uh, a, a lot of time to uh, understand the nuances of this industry. And nuance is an important word, as, as you both know. So before we get into the technology side of the conversation, um, you, I'm sure you, like I, have been on the phone in recent months understanding the state of the, the, the market, the real estate market, right? These are the people who buy the technology. And, you know, we've been on a digital transformation journey for 25 plus years you know, in the real estate industry, it got accelerated by the pandemic, right? With everybody at this work from home experiment. And, and now the, you know, everything that we knew in 2019 is being challenged, right? These, a lot of office buildings are, are not full, 50% on, you know, occupied, utilized. We're hearing, you know, issues of debt and, and devaluation, all this, this bad news. Zach, you want to, from your vantage point, especially, you know, coming out of the New York City region, what are you seeing and feeling about the general market? Are we in for some trouble or are we going to get through it, you know, pretty unscathed? Uh, we are both in for some trouble and we are going to get through it. I think uh, what will be indicative is Newmark has been selected to manage the sale process of Signature Bank, which was one of the two banks taken over by the FDIC uh, on March 12th of this year. Uh, and that's a huge and very concentrated in the New York area commercial loan book. Right. So the important thing is there's been, there hasn't been a lot of transactions. There were a lot of transactions and liquidity in the market in 21. 
last year was a very, very slow year. People have been ignoring the brewing problems. Um, I think once the signature book has to trade, we'll see a significant repricing event that will lead to more transactions inevitably occurring and will lead to a significant repricing. We'll see how much some of this real estate gets repriced. I think in, you had an, uh, a triple negative issue associated with anybody who extended a loan or took a new loan out uh, in 2020 or 21. Uh, interest rates have gone up by say 400 basis points, but spreads have also widened. So your loan is effectively seven or 800 basis points more expensive than it was two years ago. Years a lot of people were underwriting, even if it was moderate, they were underwriting rent growth. We've actually seen on both the commercial side and the multifamily, single family rental side, a rent contraction. Um, and so that's gonna hurt that pro forma as well. I think another issue which uh, was unexpected to me was the price of insurance when when real estate borrowers lock in some of these uh, more esoteric floating rate packages. They have to buy insurance. The cost of that insurance has gone up, gone up. exponentially. Yep. And so not only is it way more expensive just paying your loan, a lot of these insurance policies have been fundamentally unaffordable. That's going to drive transactions in the market. Those transactions so drive repricing. So Travis, from your perspective, I think we all agree we're in for some hurt. How fast do we get to the ugly? And then how fast do we get out of it? Give me some years. I mean, is it 12 months, 18 months, two years? How, fa I mean, how fast do we get to that? Rip the Band-Aid off. We're in trouble. We got to fix this. And then how much longer till we get back to a stabilized market? Well, given the, the, the you know, interest rates and the challenge that Zach just pointed out, I think it unravels pretty fast, okay. right? I think that the, the price adjustment um, was forecastable when you saw what was likely to be the, on the other side of the pandemic and people were ignoring it. SVB signature just put a finer point on just how distressed these loans are that support a lot of the value that's there. That said, you know, we look at it from a, the, the other side and say the buildings have real value to the occupants and we're still spending 90% of our time indoors. So all we're going to see is, is, is a price adjustment. And that will certainly dampen enthusiasm for investing in those buildings if they don't have to. I think our perspective is there's a lot of investments that have to be made to improve the performance of those buildings for the occupants and also the, the, the communities that they're in whether those are, are, are forced by regulation or by just customer demand. Right. And that's the, the only way you're going to make those buildings valuable again. Well, and the thing that's interesting to me is, I mean, I've seen four cycles now in my career. Um, and this is a, you know, a typical 10, 15 year financial cycle, like we've seen in 90 and 2001 and 2008 and, and then this one. But the other thing that I'm trying to, you know, wrap my head around is it, it, this paradigm shift, this op, this accelerated obsolescence, right? Meaning I can work from home, I can work from anywhere. And the fact that people don't want to you know, drive into that office. So we got this cycle that's laying on top of this paradigm shift. And, and does that accelerate this process or does it extend it? That That's what, you know, a, a lot of the conversations I'm having to do, because we're trying to literally put dates to this, you know, two years, three years. Like in 95 or 90, it was stay alive till 95 was kind of the same. <laughs> and I think it was the same for, for .com. Uh, it was about three or four years. Um, all right. So 
we we're going to we're going to have some hurt but but it's going to clean the market up we're going to get to you know some new pricing now on the prop tech side on the other side of the signature bank we got svb silicon valley you know heart heartbeat of silicon valley a lot of companies i don't know if you guys had any involvement with them but a lot of people investing in tech did banking at svb um is that was that indicative of the state of the prop tech investment landscape or was it off to the side and a little bit of an anomaly I, I, I think unrelated. I, I, I think, you know, it was a disruption across the industry and the, and the ripples will, have been, will be felt for a while. People tend to think that their bank is just their bank and it's a safe place to keep money. And so nobody gave it much in the past. Now it's just another opportunity for, for risk to be introduced. But I don't think there was anything about startups per se. You know, it was a bad trade of their own, you know, betting on interest rates not changing. Um, all right. So, so Zach, let's get into the prop tech space and let's kind of use a 10 year uh, framework. Give me like your assessment of, you know, five to 10 years ago, you know, last 24 months leading up to today. And then, and then I'm going to ask the same of Travis and, you know, I would just want to get your, you know, it was great, great, great. Then it stopped or it slowed down. And then, and then right after that question, we're going to get into the future. So give us a little summary of the last, call it 10 years. Summary of the last 10 years. Yeah, prop tech. Yeah. So hard up investments. Yeah. We um we we take the pulse of 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 investors in the space, entrepreneurs. We put out the semi-annual confidence index. Um, so we try to have a a a a beat on the market, so to speak. I think one of the major stories and and one of the Things that was exciting for me about being uh, young in business in New York City at the time was we started to see the consumerization of the enterprise in commercial real estate as a trend. And we started to see it. We were talking about it a little bit earlier, the shift from on-prem to cloud computing and yeah. data at everybody's fingertips. And a lot of those companies started popping up. They were headquartered. Uh, in the Flatiron District where I was hanging out um, around the time I was going to business school, Columbia Business School, companies like the Square Foot, Reonomy, uh, VTS, Hightower. And there was this notable energy. And that started exactly 10 years ago. Those companies were, were starting in 2013. And one could feel a very palpable energy. One of the first things we did um, when uh, Aaron Block, my co-founder, and I started Metaprop in 2015 was we took a look at our at the block where our office was 20 West 21st Street between Fifth and Sixth Avenue in Manhattan, and there were 12 prop tech companies that dealt wow. in specifically in this consumerized enterprise, this sort of new way of data accessibility and this new idea of pleasant user interface instead of really hard to use, uh, uh, challenging to install user interface, sort of more mm -hmm. plug and play tutorial base. Um, and that industry effectively grew up and effectively became mature. And our funds, um, Travis's fund, our fund, our uh, the, the other funds in our cohort grew up. And that was sort of the story of the last um, 10 years up into a absolutely unsustainable frothy fervor culminating in 2021 when in 2021 when did you see it stop well it start it, it it's the music really stops around november of 21 but you Back see now. just to give you an example you see a 
more than doubling in 2020 and 21, you see a more than doubling of the publicly traded prop tech companies, right? That's an exciting thing for an industry, but maybe not a healthy thing. So we saw the same thing in dot com, by the way. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was the same pattern where it got frothy. I would say the music started getting turned down around March and then stopped in November, December timeframe. Travis, do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. I, 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 you know, Gar Gar Gartner's hype cycle has has stood the test of time for a reason. Once once <laughs> anything is seen to be have a lot of potential, um, there there is a conceit in the venture industry that more money can move markets faster. Right. And we learn time and time again that the money doesn't move the industry; it's the entrepreneurs and the business model and the value it creates, and that. For, for any kind of market has a certain adoption cycle. And in the real estate market, it is un uniquely challenging and is that's true of construction as well. And I, I think one of the distinguishing characteristics was when we and Metaprop and others got started, you had a lot of people who really understood the customer set to help get these companies birthed. And then you had a lot of money come in from generalist venture investors to try and accelerate it unnaturally. And that it, under, what, they didn't understand the market totally. And, and really, the, the companies weren't moving any faster. It was the money was moving faster, and so valuations got you know overheated. Yep. That yep. that money is has has now pulled back because it's been affected by other parts of the market, um, and left everyone to grow again back at their natural pace. And let's um let's take a brief commercial break, and when we come back. We're going to focus on uh, where we're at. But now we're going to look into the future. What is it going to take for good companies to survive startups? What do you need to know in this climate? Uh, and we couldn't be asking or having a conversation with two better guys. We'll be right back. All right, guys. So um, just to close out on that last conversation, um, it, as, as Aaron or as Zach mentioned, you know, we've seen a pretty big devaluation of those public companies. And, and Zach, I know you sent me the report, so I'm going to take a look at that and and try to wrap my head around the whole landscape. But how how much is the market going to have to be recalibrated from a percentage standpoint based upon what we're seeing in the public facing companies? Is it 25%, 30%, 50%? I mean, any guesses on, on, on how much air has to come out of that balloon? I don't need to guess. I'm living it. Okay. What's the number? So it, it's different. So keep in mind, right? In the public equity market, shares trade hands every second of every day. So you have effectively a repricing event. What's happened in the private markets is a lot of companies have been able to delay those repricing events effectively throughout potentially waiting out this entire down market. So in some cases where they don't need to raise, you haven't seen a correction necessarily in their valuation at all. I think in those cases, when we look at the market comps, we tend to mark our books down, but we see the company operationally still performing. We tend to mark our books down gradually. So we'll take a 25% write down. Then if things are still not getting better, we'll take another 25% write down, but we don't do that necessarily right. as a practice. What we are seeing for the businesses who have to raise, who have to come back to market, they're coming back to market now with effectively the same headline valuation that they had in 2021. But keep in mind, they have more traction now. These are the decent companies. 
more traction now, so it's a lower multiple, they will also usually add on an investor-friendly protection that they would not have in a good market. So there might be a 2x liquidation preference or full ratchet anti-dilution protection. Tighter terms. What you're saying is tighter terms. Tighter terms, which you can't do in the public market, but you're effectively raising at the same headline valuation. So it's tough to say what that backs into in terms of a discount. Right. Whereas in the public market, you can look at a stock and say, oh, in some of the cases, and we were talking about it, of the DSPAC stocks, those names are down 85%. In the other public prop techs, those names are down more like 40%. And so there's definitely been a lot of pain, but we've been able to see a stabilization. I think to Travis's point before, there's less capital available for the category. We don't have the same fervor from crossover funds, generalists who'd never been in this space. It's now our cohort plus generalists who had always been investing in the space, which I don't want to speak for him, but frankly, I prefer (laughs) to do business with people who actually know about the business models of the companies they're investing in, but it does put pressure on valuations. But this idea that in the private markets, you're seeing down rounds all over the place, it's inaccurate. You're more likely to see a flat round with an enhanced downside protection for the investor. And that's how we translate it. So Travis, what do you tell the, the companies that you're managing right now that might be feeling a little bit of what Zach described? And then what about the guys uh, walking in the door fresh? You know, what do you, what, what's your first three minutes or two minutes of your conversation sound like when you're talking to them? Yeah, it, it's, it's still always about focusing on the, the delivery of value to the end customer, right? I mean, we're, we're big believers in, in, in working the experience backwards. And I would say, you know, what we've not seen, and it's to call anything the real estate market is 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 a hard thing to do because there are so many different pockets, so many different property types, so many different geographic markets that, you know, all of which are going through through various things. But, you know, for us, we are what we're trying to do is invest in companies that we believe have a have a, a strong possibility of getting to $100 million of gross margin in an eight year time frame. Right. We're, we're investing in the pretty early in. If you are deeply tied to interest rates and interest rate arbitrage, well, climbing that ladder got a lot harder in the last two years. Um, If you're about increasing productivity on a construction site or helping to access labor pools, which is one of the biggest challenges that construction companies have today, nothing about those dynamics has changed. And so really focusing on how are you delivering that value is critical. I think to the the overall state of the market, we're, we're we're paying a lot of attention to when raising capital is let's make sure we have enough that we can get outside of this noise and let's raise it from other investors who appreciate the dynamics of building a business in this space and aren't just simply saying real estate's 11 trillion dollar market there's huge opportunity there so take that you know, slide should, out of your deck <laughs> let's, let's let's raise 100 million dollars and off right. to be a deck of corn we go well, you know, it's funny because going back to dot-com specifically, the parallels are, are pretty incredible, right? Would both of you agree that the best innovation is going to incur after the hype cycle is over? Do you believe that? Definitely. I mean, th- th- I there's, um, there's, there's, there's been lots of analysis over time that, you know, 
the, the wave of innovation, mo most technologies tend to be born 30 years before they ever actually get adopted. Exactly. Somewhere yeah. along that trajectory, people get really excited about the potential of them. About, again, back to Gartner's hype cycle. When that collapses, those that really do deliver value, in the pre-call we were just talking about, you know, re re reality capture and 3D walkthroughs. Yeah. It's going to change real estate and the industry and the brokerage market. Well, no, but is it really valuable to be able to get into a space digitally and, and understand it? For sure. And if you see the installation of those things happen, you know, all of a sudden you know, there's real business opportunity and value to be to be delivered and then expanded from there. Yeah, yeah. I I actually get if I going back and looking at you know out of the ten companies that we saw in two thousand one, if seven of them went out of business because for all the reasons you both listed, we got CoStar, we got LoopNet, we got Avid Exchange, and 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 many others who had the good ideas and and the right management teams to plug through and ultimately change the way uh, we did business. So I, I expect the same on on this this time around as well. I tend yeah. to think that that these the best companies get started at troughs, but I just looked it up in PropTech. It hasn't exactly been the case. Airbnb was definitely a child of the 2008-9 recession, but Zillow was launched in 2006. The economy was really good. CoStar in early uh, 87, real estate 87, market yeah. still good. Stock market still hadn't crashed. So in a couple cases of the biggest companies, I haven't looked up uh, Autodesk or whatever. Um, they were actually started in relatively uh, a decent periods economically. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, yeah. I, do, I do think that's a, it's, it's, it's an important observation that Zach made because it is, it is true. I mean, the thing that we look for is entrepreneurs who are formidable and are relentlessly resourceful, right? And those who are willing to start a business when it's challenged and work their way through it tend to be the ones who can be successful over the long term. I agree. When money flows e e e easily on a fifteen-point, you know, PowerPoint slide presentation, then anybody wants to be a, be yeah. a startup founder. Well, well, we used to, we used to, we had a measurement of how big are the shrimp and how big are the cigars at your parties, and and if you were spending money there as opposed to being up till midnight working with your clients, how to figure out the solution. Those companies didn't make it, and the ones who rolled up their sleeves did. So it's a good idea as with strong management teams. As someone guilty of hiring the B-52s for a launch party for, <laughs> for a company that didn't have software for another six months post-launch party. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's, I'm not going to name who it was. There's a famous prop tech party that did uh, right before the dot-com crash, did a launch party at the Temple of Dender and then <laughs> went bankrupt. Uh, you know, yeah, we, uh, I think I may know who those people are. venue uh, in all of New York. And they were bankrupt yeah. like six months later. I, I think we it need to really continue hard. to. It was hard for us to get people's attention in 2000. Yeah. You know, you need to do something spectacular. It wasn't enough to just deliver a great product. I, I think we need to continue this conversation privately with a good bottle of wine because I'm sure I, we could share some some fun stories. Guys, unfortunately, I'm not going to get to any more questions. We went a little bit over, but this we could have kept going for an hour. Um, and, and of course, this conversation is going to continue at the conference. We've got a, a whole bunch of you guys coming. We're going to try to get the VC you know, uh, startup investment um, you know, uh, category integrated with, you know, some of our startups that we're finding, but as well as, you know, listening to the stories of adoption. So we're excited to have you part of the conference and really, really appreciate all your hard work and, and your willingness to share today and, and you know, throughout the, the time to the conference and really hope collectively we roll up our sleeves, get through these 
these challenges and then onto a bigger and better commercial and corporate real estate world. So thank you so much. And uh, we will uh, be back in touch and looking forward to seeing you both. So Great. Appreciate having us. Look for the conference. All right, Thanks, Travis. Pat. Great to see you, Zach. Be good. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, boy, uh, that conversation could have easily gone on another half hour to an hour, uh, but we're going to, we are going to continue it at, at length uh, at the conference. So let's bring on uh, my favorite part of our um, RealCom Live, Howard. Sorry about that, friend. Uh, I, no was at, I was looking at the clock and I'm going, oh, we're at, we're already at a half hour. So um, I will. That was uh, a good conversation. That, yeah. that easily could have gone on another half hour. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, these and, guys are in the trenches. They're in the trenches. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And, and, and go ahead. I was just going to say thanks for mentioning that we are bringing in the VCs in uh, a much bigger way this year and creating channels so that our Realcom community can can get in closer touch with them, really understand yep. what they're offering and understand the nuances of the market. Well, I, I would say that's our biggest challenge this year. There's probably four, five, six different communities at the conference that sometimes kind of clump together. So we got, you know, the technical side of the commercial side, we got the technical side of the corporate side, we got the integrators, we got the manufacturers, we got the venture capital committee. All I would ask anybody to do is don't hang with your cohort. Um, you got to go to different rooms. You got to meet different people because it's collectively as an ecosystem that we're going to get through this and then ultimately on to the next level of success. But but the, the integrators, for example, the integrator roundtable. I mean, you got some of the best companies out there coming out with new ideas. They need to maybe have a little VC interjection, you know, in, into their conversation and vice versa. So I, I would just encourage people to, you know, get out of your comfort zone, leave your friends for a couple hours and explore all the different categories of, of people in this ecosystem that are going to be present. So I'm yeah. sorry, let me get out of your hair so you can get to the news. Oh, thanks, Jim. <laughs> and, and thanks, Travis and Zach. That was great having you with us today. Uh, so I'm just take a couple of minutes. I'm going to give you a few news stories from our weekly briefing. It goes out every Thursday morning. Uh, if you don't see it in your inbox, just go up to our website, realcom.com, click on news, and you can subscribe there. So our lead story comes from Milan Zakar. Uh, he's the chief technology officer at Car Properties, and it's entitled Managing Organizational Anxiety, a Modern Cybersecurity Story. So the days of simply just worrying about enterprise network hacks and email phishing are long gone. Now add to the list asset level cybersecurity or OT, IOT. That's everything connected to the Internet in our buildings from CCTVs to lighting to elevators, HVAC sensors. And OT cyber is a much different animal than enterprise IT cyber. So one of the questions, who's ultimately responsible for these OT systems? Is it facilities, is it IT, the integrators, the OEMs? Unfortunately, this has led to a current situation where there's literally billions of square feet across the world that are vulnerable to cyber hacks with huge risks to life safety, to productivity loss, regulatory, uh, non-compliance, brand damage, corporate network infiltration, equipment replacement, uh, and more. So in this article, great perspective from Milan Zakhar, somebody who's been deep in the transfers for years with OT Cyber. Next, uh, I want to shout out to this week's tech partner, Yardi, for their article entitled Five Ways to Upskill Your Workforce with Learning Technology. So there's been an uptick in investment in learning technology that drives employee engagement, increases operational efficiency. Millennials, about 36% of the workforce, they prefer mobile-friendly sites that promote social learning, networking, collaboration, and their information delivered in bite-sized, engaging experiences. Even though digital transformation has eliminated a lot of the repetitive manual tasks and human intervention is still required 
in a lot of the process, but with the right skills, the time savings reaped from digitization can be spent on much more productive tasks like spotting trends and interpreting data and adjusting algorithms. In this great article, Patty Evans, industry principal from Yardi, explores how modern learning management systems can help us upskill or reskill today's workforce in the face of automation and outsourcing. So thank you, Yardi. Uh, since 2012, we've been profiling and showcasing outstanding examples of technologically advanced smart buildings, campuses, and portfolios at the annual conference. And this week, we're featuring Rudin's New York portfolio and focusing on how they've pioneered in machine learning and AI to optimize their building operations in pursuit of environmental responsibility. So nearly 25 years ago, Rudin transformed 55 Broad Street into the first fully wired office building in the world. And... Uh, it won uh, Most Technologically Advanced Building Award at Realcom in 2000 and really established Rudin as a global thought leader in the advancement of technology within the built environment. Now, then in 2013, Rudin uh, piloted Nantum OS, the first operating system for buildings, and now using AI and machine learning, they're continuing development of the building performance systems, <clears throat> excuse me, to optimize energy and enhance the tenant experience. So thank you, Rudin. Um, Finally, uh, from BizNow, uh, we touched on this a little bit earlier. More cities are giving away money now for office to resi project, projects as, a as the threat of obsolescence grows. Um, so falling tax revenue, aging downtowns, record office, office vacancies, an unprecedented housing crisis, they've all converged. And now we're asking the question, could office to resi conversions help tackle some of these problems? So aside from the inherent challenges, structural, like unusable floor plates, core layout, big fixed windows, not to mention zoning issues, there are opportunities out there, maybe a few hundred million square feet that have been identified throughout the country as potentially feasible for conversion. But the, the problem is most of them just don't pencil out. And cities and states are starting to offer incentives for conversion. So Chicago came in with 200 million, California, another 400 million, DC, about two and a half million in tax abatements and other cities and states are following because developers are just saying the math doesn't work out without public funds. So this is going to be continue to be a big topic. Um, that's it for me. Um, a few of this week's highlights. Uh, back to you, Jim. Yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, you know, the news is getting a little bit sprinkled a little bit with some bad news. I mean, you know, you and your team scan, scan the, you know, the airwaves, if you will. And, and we have some, some, I'd say, challenging times coming. And so with that being said, FOMO is done. Fear missing out, I think, is done. Shiny new object is done. I think it's time for all categories of the industry to come together. Uh, we've done it before, and we're going to do it again, you know, and, and work together to get, you know, technology and all the benefits it represents integrated into the built mm -hmm. environment in a meaningful way. So it's so good to have, you know, these guys from the venture community and, like I said, all those other categories and groups of people we have. And I'm looking forward to the conference from the respect that we're in this together. It can be beat. Technology's got a role in, in getting us out of this. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about it for 25 years and, you know, this is going to be just another chapter in a long journey. So a long, in a, in a long book. So I agree. I agree. Thank you for your insight. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks. All right. So uh, before I wrap and talk about next week, let's hear from our final sponsor and uh, I'll be right back. All right. Um, so uh, first of all, thank you to our guests. Uh, two great guys rolling up the sleeves, been at this a while. 
Uh, real, and again, this is just the beginning of the conversation. We're going to use this as the starting point into what's going to turn out to be a very good conversation at the conference uh, on this topic, as well as, you know, how do we leverage this community in, into the entire ecosystem uh, to, to get things to happen faster and more efficient. So um, next week, uh, big topic. You can't avoid this one. Uh, ChatGBT has got it, everybody talking about it. But I think it was five years ago that I asked Anna Yardi on stage uh, in our general session, you know, what did he think about AI? And we had just come back uh, from a, a conversation with a gentleman who was in the room when uh, I think it was a team from Google uh, actually beat the Korean Go champion in this very complex Asian game. And, and he said he was in the room and he looked over at the developers and they were asking each other, you know, what's going on? We don't know what it's doing. Basically, the AI had taken over and it was doing things that the programmers did not understand. Elon Musk's weighed in on this. They're coming up with a consortium. They want a six month moratorium. People are kind of going all off. Uh, and, uh, and we're wondering, how is it going to impact the real estate industry? So next week we have got been a leader and leading edge technologies in our industry. We've had them on our general session stage before. Uh, Sundar Papu, SVP of and Head of Technology and Strategy for Inland, as well as Kashesh Shandal, AVP Innovation and Technology, also with Inland. These guys are the real deal. Uh, they're going to talk about it. We may even show a little bit, um, but uh, AI is going to be a massive topic at the conference, and these two guys are going to be right in the middle of that conversation. So looking forward to that, and we wish you all a great weekend, and uh, we will see you next Friday on Realcom Life. Be well.